Well, good morning, Antioch. So good to see you all today. My name's Pete, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us. And uh, we are in the middle of observing the Christian season of Lent. And um, Lent is an opportunity to uh, engage difficult uh, realities. And this morning, our service is built around the theme of suffering, as you may have picked up. And uh, if you were here today looking for a happy, feel-good time, um, sorry about that. That's not what we're doing today. Um, Come back on Easter, uh, and you'll get that. But this is one of the things I really appreciate about a season like Lent, is that it calls our attention to these uh, things that we'd honestly rather not deal with, things we'd rather not talk about. In fact, most of us spend most of our lives trying to avoid things like suffering, right? Like that's really almost the reason why we do everything we do is so that we don't have to suffer or deal with suffering. But in a season like Lent, we are invited as a community together to engage some of these difficult questions, issues, and realities that go along with life and thereby prepare ourselves to live in the real world as followers of Jesus because we know that the real world is full of things like suffering. And so even the practice of fasting during Lent, in some ways, is a, a voluntary act of suffering. That if you're giving up food or some other comfort or luxury or pleasure during this season, what you're doing is actually practicing suffering. Depriving yourself of something comfortable or familiar uh, for the sake of preparing for those times in life when it's involuntary when you experience loss or pain in some significant way. And so uh, a season like Lent is incredibly valuable in the formation of our souls and our preparation to live in the real world as followers of Jesus. And so this morning we're talking about suffering, and then if you're doing the Lent reading guide throughout the week, it'll be uh, where we are um, as well throughout the rest of the week. Um, Real quick, before we dive into the message, I want to just make sure we put it on your radar that this whole Lent season is leading somewhere, and that is, again, towards um, Easter Sunday, which is coming up on April 16th. And so we are excited. Next week, we'll have some some handouts and uh, even invitation cards that you could use to invite friends or coworkers or neighbors to join us here that that morning. Um, But we're going to have a big party, a big celebration. We're going to do one big service at 10 a.m., try to fill this place as much as we can. And um, so just want to make sure that's on your calendar. And then two days prior on Good Friday, uh, which will be April 14th, we're also going to be gathering that evening as well. Uh, the high school here had uh, another event, and so we, we're going to be at the Tower Theater for Good Friday doing uh, one service that evening. And so um, we'll have child care for the littlest kids, um, but then uh, elementary and up will be in there with us. So it'll be a short but powerful time. So I just want to encourage you to mark your calendar and plan on being at both of those events uh, with us. Um, And then also Sunday morning of Easter, we're having again our sunrise service at the top of Pilot Butte. So um, it's kind of more of a community thing that that was initiated uh, within the church a few years ago and now has kind of become a tradition. So um, that'll be at six and then our main service at 10. So anyways, looking forward to that and it always helps to navigate a difficult season like Lent uh, when we know that, uh, that Easter's coming. And so that's where we're headed. Um, so turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1, where Alyssa read from, and that'll be uh, the text that we're going to engage this morning as we talk about the reality of human suffering. And um, what we know is that suffering is one of those things that is really inevitable when it comes to our lives and the world that we live in that almost on a regular basis we're able to locate to one degree or another the presence of of suffering in our lives as a result of pain or loss or disappointment or death or separation or something like that. Um, And if it's not directly, personally, our life where we're experiencing loss, it's it's not more than one or two people away that are close to us, that are walking through a time of pain and suffering. And so we understand it personally and in the life of our families and communities. And then obviously, uh, from a global perspective, we know that uh, always there are things happening in this world, terrible pain and loss and heartache that are being experienced uh, by our human brothers and sisters all across the globe. And so suffering, though we'd rather not talk about it, is one of those things uh, that is going to be inevitable. Uh, 
And as followers of Jesus, uh, our hope is to learn how to engage seasons of suffering, how to suffer well, and how to walk with those that are suffering around us for the sake of, of God's glory. And so, um, so I'll start by doing this a little bit more of a classroom style, just walk through a couple different ideas, and then we'll engage the text in more of a narrative way. Um, when we talk about suffering, there's essentially three categories or sources for suffering in the world. Um, the first is sin. Sin is one of the primary sources of suffering. And when I say sin, I mean the violation of God's command. I mean, uh, rather than choosing to trust and obey who God is and what he has declared to be good and evil, uh, we assume that responsibility or that knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. And so it's beyond disobedience, it's disloyalty, but it's really a dethroning of God and a throning of ourselves over over our lives. And so many of us from our own experience could trace back and go, I can see how some of the seasons of suffering I've endured have been sourced in my own sin, in my decisions to not follow God's way, but instead to pursue uh, pleasure or greed or whatever it is. And I thought it was going to lead me to freedom, but instead it led me to, to slavery, right? So oftentimes our own sin is the thing that causes suffering. We find ourselves in these seasons and we can trace it back to, to something that we've done or an area of our life that hasn't been submitted to Christ. Other times, it's the sin of others. Those that have hurt us, those that have wronged us, those that have sinned against us or done violence towards us. And most of us in this room know something of what that's like when we're mistreated, whether in really kind of small ways, insulted or hurt, or in really massive ways where we are abused or taken advantage of or, or violence is done towards us. Suffering, uh, inevitably, is one of the results of sin in the world, both ours and the sins done against us or in our presence. Um, second source of suffering is the fact that we live in a fallen world. The God we know originally created the world good. He, he created each piece of, of this world and said it is good, it is good, it is good. It was a world without sin, a world without suffering, a world without evil and pain. Um, and then eventually uh, the story changes and humanity dethrone, dethrones God and into the world enters, um, enters human pain, enters human suffering. And so we live in a fallen world now, and this means that sometimes the suffering that we or others experience isn't directly the result of a sinful act or something like that. It's just the world is broken. And so in natural ways, this shows up in things like sickness and in disease and cancer and, and, uh, and also in these natural forces of tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, Fires, floods, right? The natural world brings a lot, brings much suffering into, into existence. And other times the supernatural. And that's the, actually the story that we'll see in, in Job a little bit more. But we understand that there's this kind of personal power be behind sin and evil in the world. And it often shows up and uh, creates human suffering as well. So sin, fallen world, and finally, another source of, of suffering is following Jesus, Right? And that's uh, probably the one that's least, uh, maybe least intuitive for us to think about. But the truth is, it shouldn't be a surprise. One of the ways that the Bible talks about Jesus, one of the descriptions, is that he's called the suffering servant. If there's one thing we know about Jesus, it's that he experienced immense suffering as a human being throughout his life, but then ultimately in the events that would lead to his death. Jesus suffered, so much so that it's how he's described. And we follow the suffering servant. He's our leader, which means we go where he goes. If we follow the suffering servant, then we wouldn't be surprised if our life as well was marked by suffering to one degree or another. And so sometimes that suffering is an internal and this is just kind of the inner warfare of what it feels like to be a Christian. That there's this tension. Paul in the book of Galatians talks about the flesh and the spirit, the new creation and the old creation. Our new nature and our old nature that are in conflict with one another. 
that to be a Christian is to live a life of really inner turmoil in many ways, if you think about it. Where we're not just doing whatever we want to do, but we also are trying to do what God's calling us to do. And those two natures are constantly uh, at war with one another. And so there's this uh, description of the Lord's Prayer by this songwriter named Derek Webb where he talks about that line where we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says that the Lord's Prayer is an act of self-sabotage. Kind of hardcore language, but the idea is exactly what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. He must be willing to suffer, willing to experience pain and loss and inconvenience and discomfort for the sake of taking hold of me. And that old self is sabotaged when we pursue Jesus with faithfulness and obedience. And so there's this sense of inner conflict that's a reality of suffering as followers of Jesus. And then there's an external aspect as well, right? And if we're honest, as people living in the time and place that we do in the world and history, we don't know a whole lot about this firsthand. Some of us maybe have experienced a little bit of ridicule or exclusion or uh, the rolling of the eyes of our co-workers over our Christian faith, but we know throughout history and around the world that many followers of Jesus experience extreme persecution for their faith, where they are regularly um, fired, beaten, excluded, imprisoned, tortured, and often even executed for the sake of their faith because they refuse um, to renounce Christ. And uh, again, we wouldn't be surprised if we follow the suffering servant um, in Jesus, then this is going to mark our lives. And so suffering is inevitable. It has many sources. There's probably others that, that would land somewhere else on that list. But for the most part, we now all kind of go, okay, yeah, this is, this is what it is to be human. This is part of life, okay? And so the problem then arises, where is God in all of this? As followers of Jesus who understand God's revealed himself to us, both in scripture and ultimately in the person of Christ, we know that the Bible teaches God to be an all-powerful God who's in control, he's strong, there's nothing he can't do. And we also know that the Bible teaches God to be a good God, a loving God, who desires flourishing and life for people and not death. And so you have this strong, powerful God and this good, loving God, and you would think that that would equal a world without human suffering, or at least some sort of really clear explanation for why it does exist. And um, throughout the centuries, Bible scholars, Christian theologians, as well as just everyday Christians have tried to figure out this problem of where is God in suffering, and how can we make sense of the character and nature of God um, alongside the pain and the evil, the sin and the suffering that's present in the world. And so there's several ways, and I want to give you just kind of four, and they're really on a spectrum, um, explanations for suffering that, that have been uh, helpful for Christians throughout the year. The first is what we would call the script theory. We're just doing some seminary right now. We'll get into the message in a little bit, but stay with me because I, this is going to be helpful. The first is called script theory, and it's basically the idea that history is God's written script in order to glorify himself and accomplish his purposes in the world. And so it's essentially a way of saying that everything that happens is preordained, meticulously uh, appointed by God. It's all scripted out. The story is already written. And so... uh, Everything that happens, including human sin and the experience of suffering, is, is ordained. Not necessarily caused by God, but allowed by God or ordained. And so even the worst moments of evil in our lives or throughout the, the story of humanity, that somehow God has ordained all of that stuff and he's scripted it and therefore there is no purposeless pain. That God is in control, he's good, he's strong, he knows what he's doing, and sometimes the way that he's written the story, uh, we don't get it, but we would trust 
that he is in charge and it's all going to work out. Okay? So script theory. The second one is the ship theory. And this is the idea that human history is this giant ship sailing through the sea. And God is the captain of this ship and he has planned out this pathway from point A to point B, from the beginning of time to the end of time, that he's got a plan for the world, and we and all of humanity with us are the passengers on this ship. And so God is going to get from point A to point B, but on the ship, he has given us the freedom to move around as we please. So I can go as far left as I want on the ship, and I feel like I'm actually even in control of my life. I'm going left. I keep going left. But the reality is I'm just a passenger on the ship that keeps moving forward. Right? I can go back and forth, up and down. I can climb to the lower deck, the upper deck. And there's this sense of human uh, choice at work, but in the end, somehow God is loving enough and powerful enough to bring it all about um, and use it all through his, for his story and for his glory, okay? It's the idea of ship theory. Next, we kind of move down the spectrum to the free will theory. And it's similar but a little bit different. It's just the idea that God, when he created humanity, created us with the capacity to choose. We could choose to love him and trust him or we could choose to reject him and disobey him. And so he cannot give humans freedom and also guarantee that good will come from all of our choices. And so God values true worship. He wants people to choose him. He wants people to love him, not not puppets or robots that have no choice, but that true love, true choice, true devotion is what God's after. And if he's going to free up people to choose him, then that means we also have the freedom not to. And therefore, there's sin. Therefore, there's a broken world. And, um, and in this theory, God is, is redeeming. He's redeeming. He's not necessarily ordaining uh, sin and suffering and evil, but he's working with the choices that humanity makes. Okay? And then finally, the openness theory. Um, and I would say this is probably the one that's on the, uh, the least orthodox end of the spectrum, but I, knew, I do know that there's some... Um, scholars and theologians that, that hold to this. And it's basically the idea that God's this giant chess player that uh, can outmaneuver whatever his free creatures um, bring to his purpose. There's genuine risk for God. There's genuine risk. And it kind of is a helpful answer for like, why did God put that tree in the garden in the first place? Or why did God ever create snakes? Or why did God allow that person to be born if their life was going to be so terrible? And open theologians would say, God didn't know. Okay? Um, again, have a hard time with that one. But I think hope you, hopefully you can see the spectrum from meticulous sovereignty all the way to open theology. This idea that sometimes God, some, some of us view God as very intensely involved in scripting every aspect of life and others kind of God is more removed but somehow working to redeem all of it. Okay? So which one's right? What's the right answer? I, I don't think any of them quite nail the vision of the Bible when it comes to the relationship between God and suffering. I think there's helpful ideas in most of them. And when it comes time for me to engage this conversation with some of my kids, probably somewhere in that middle section is where we'll start. But for, but for adults, for smart people like you, we can actually dive in a little bit deeper. And the reason that I think all these theories and all the points between them and beyond them are actually insufficient to explain the problem of suffering and a good God is because they assume a symmetrical relationship between God and suffering. All these theories assume that if God is like this, then suffering can be understood like this. If God is like that, then suffering can be experienced like that. There's this symmetrical or almost this uh, mathematical equation that we're trying to read into this reality. That if God, then suffering. And we assume that there's symmetry there. But the Bible's version, vision of suffering is way more complex, mysterious, nuanced, 
and beautiful than that. But it's a hard obstacle for us to overcome. In John chapter 9, there's this short story where, uh, I'll just read it, as he went, this is Jesus, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Stop there for a second. And so here's the moment, and this is, we can enter into this story. We see somebody whose life is marked by suffering. This man who's been blind and now is a beggar on the street corner. And his disciples are wrestling with the problem of God's goodness and the reality of suffering. And they're going, this is the perfect moment for us to ask Jesus. So what's the deal, Jesus? What's the equation here? How can we make sense of this human who is suffering? It must be that there's sin. So was it that his parents sinned and therefore God caused or ordained or allowed this, this child to be born blind as sort of a punishment or a consequence for his parents' sin? Or was it this guy? Was it his sin? Is there something wrong with him in that he is now sort of getting what he deserves, right? How does Jesus answer? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. A couple things I want to say about this passage. First of all, we started by saying that sin, both ours and the sin of others, is one of the sources of suffering in the world. And that's demonstrably true throughout Scripture and throughout our own experience. What we don't want to do is go around and when we see somebody suffering, go, well, it must be because of their sin. I don't think any of us would ever say this out loud. But I think as Westerners, we have a functional karma. And we would never actually say that, but I think there's something within us that's wrestling with these existential questions so deeply that when we observe a human who is going through hell, we somehow assume that they must have done something to deserve it. That somehow they're getting punished or there's some sort of explanation for why that person is hurting, struggling, suffering the way that they are. And we're no different than the disciples that way, right? And we go to Jesus and go, okay, was it him or was it his parents who sinned? And what does Jesus say? Wrong question, guys. That's not how this works. You can't assume that there's a symmetrical relationship between God and suffering. It doesn't work that way. It's not that simple. There's so much more going on than that. And so the Bible's vision of suffering is that there's an asymmetrical relationship between God and the brokenness, the sin, the evil, and suffering in the world. So oftentimes... That functional karma, dealing with ourselves or with others or even what's happening in the world at large, is exposed when we ask the question, why? That's one of our first instincts. When we observe suffering or experience it ourselves, we want to go, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to them? There has to be some sort of explanation. And when we get to the book of Job, there is no piece of literature, not only in the Bible, but I think you could argue in the world, throughout history, that addresses the question of God's goodness and human suffering with the intellectual and philosophical integrity that this book does. It has been one of the most helpful guides for humans for centuries and centuries in engaging this question and understanding that asymmetrical relationship. And so, in the book of Job, we really won't do the whole thing this morning. We're just going to do the first chapter. But what you have is essentially a play. In many ways, it's written as a lyrical drama. It's very poetic in the way that it's written, in the dialogue, and then really structured as a, as a play or as a dramatic performance. And there's these three acts, essentially. And the first is that there's this interaction between God and the Satan character. And then there's this long dialogue between Job and his friends. 
And then at the end of the book, there's this conversation between God and Job. Okay, so we're going to start in the first chapter. Um, Alyssa read for us, uh, starting in verse 13, what I want to do is bring us up to that point. And uh, we won't read all of it, but I just want to give you a picture of what's happening. Okay, so think about the book of Job like this. Again, it's a play, and we are the audience that are watching. It's not hard to imagine. You're literally in a theater where they do plays, right? So you're watching this play unfold, and here's what you have to imagine. On the stage in this theater, there's a lower level, and there's an upper level, right? And the lower level represents what's happening down on earth, and the upper level portrays what's happening outside of the earth, right? In the kind of spiritual dimension. So there's the kind of physical, material reality, and then there's this spiritual reality that's being portrayed up here. And so you have characters in action and drama that's happening down here, and this is where Job and his family and his friends live. And then up here on this upper stage, you have conversations that are happening between God and, and the Satan character. Now here's what's interesting. Those that are on the upper level are able to look down and see and observe and understand what's happening on the lower level. You see this in Job 1. God and Satan are kind of looking down at the earth and, go, and talking about what they see. But those on the lower level aren't able to see what's happening at the upper level. And they may have some sort of awareness that there's, there is an upper level, but they aren't able to hear or understand what's happening up there. Now, here's what's fun. We, as the readers, we get to see both. As the audience, you get to observe what's happening here and what's happening up there. And you get to observe that up there, they know what's happening down here, but down here, they don't know what's happening up here. You understand how we're looking at this? So this is how the book of Job really tells the story. So the first five verses of chapter one are on the lower stage. And we're told of this man named Job from the land of Uz. And he's blameless and upright. He fears God. He shuns evil, first verse. And then we're told that he's a man who enjoyed a great, big, wonderful family. He loved his kids, and they loved him. And then we're told that he owns all these different cattle and animals and things like that, which is essentially a way of saying he was economically wealthy. And they used to have feasts and parties, and all the time they, were, they would have a really good time. Life was good. Life was good. So down here, that's where the play starts, that Job and his family are enjoying things. And then in verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves to the Lord and Satan came also with them. Okay, which stage are we on? Upper stage, right? The Lord said to Satan, verse 7, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so that whole dialogue is up on the upper stage, and then starting in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter, what Alyssa read for us earlier is a description of what happens then on the lower stage after this, where kind of one by one, these messengers come and report to Job that all of the things in his life are being taken away from him. And I mean, if you catch the rhythm of it, it's like while this first messenger is reporting his bad news, the next messenger comes, and then the next, and then the next. And it's like within a matter of a few minutes, all the people that Job loves and all of the comfort and prosperity that Job enjoys has been taken from him, right? Incredible loss, incredible pain. And for any of us, if we just were, were to locate what would be the most painful thing, what would cause the most suffering in our lives, it's the loss of those that we love, right? For something to happen, 
to our kids or to our spouse or to our siblings. Like, many of us know what that feels like. It's the worst thing we can imagine, and, and this is Job's reality, losing everything and everyone all at once. And so that's how the drama of chapter one unfolds. Now here's what's interesting. Job's down here, and he doesn't know what's happening up there. And if you read through the entire book, he never gets to know. At no point does God ever say to Job, hey man, I know you've been through a lot, but let me tell you what was going on on the upper stage. Let me tell you about this little trick I played on Satan. Let me tell you that one day, thousands of years from now, a group of Christians in Bend, Oregon are going to be encouraged by your story, and you're going to be like a biblical rock star. Let me tell you that, Job. Wouldn't that help? God never answers those questions. God never lets Job in on what's happening in the bigger picture. And so the interesting thing in this story again is the asymmetry of it all. Did God cause Job's suffering? Well, in some ways it feels like he allowed it. In other ways it feels like, no, he didn't. He was somehow complicit, complicit and aware in it, but it also seems like God was doing something else, something bigger. So on one hand, God is in absolute control of this story. And he gives Satan permission to threaten or to, to take all these things from Job. But he only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. Right? That God somehow ordains or allows this evil and allows Satan to do what he wants to do, but only if it's going to be self-defeating. Right? We're being told that God hates suffering and evil, but he permits it to the degree that it will defeat itself. Right? So there's this interesting kind of tricky part to understanding. And again, it's asymmetrical. And so what we learn from this story and throughout the narrative as it unfolds is that we rarely, rarely ever get the answer to the question, why? Why does this happen to me? Why is this happening to us? Why did that happen in the world? Very rarely does God answer that question, and the Bible doesn't really even try. But instead, it does something totally different. In verse 8, God brings this guy Job to Satan's attention. It says, this is a good guy. This is a guy who loves me. He's blameless and upright. He fears me and shuns evil. Fears in an ancient Hebrew context was a, uh, the idea of he's in awe of me, this reverent respect, this inward uh, reverence, right? And God says, this is a man who knows me and loves me. And how does Satan then reply? He goes, in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? What's he saying? He's going, oh, God, that's really cute that you think this Job guy loves you for who you are. He obviously doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for what you've given him, for what you do for him, for how his life is benefited from you. Does Job love you for nothing? Of course he doesn't love you for nothing just because he loves you. He loves you because you've hooked him up over and over and over. He loves you because he recognizes you are the one that's made his life so good and given him this big, wonderful family and all this economic prosperity. Of course, of course he loves you. You've given him all this stuff, but that's not it. That's not really what's going on, God. You don't think he actually loves you for who you are. He clearly just loves you for what you've done for him. And what Satan does, cleverly, is put his finger on the biggest problem of the human race, one of them at least. That all of us have had this experience where we think that somebody loves us 
for who we are, but then when they realize that we're not going to do for them what they think we're going to do for them, that they're no longer interested. Right? All of us have had this experience of fake love, insincere love, when we realize, oh, they didn't really want me, they just wanted to use me. They just wanted me to hook them up, maybe professionally, introduce them to the right people, open the right doors for them. Right? And so within human relationships, we all know what this feels like, and we, we see it happen all the time. You don't really love me, you just want something from me. And the moment that it's exposed that you're not going to get, I take off. Okay? What Satan is saying is that's not just true amongst human relationships, that's true of human relationships with God. He's going, nobody actually really loves God just for God. Nobody really wants him, they just want his stuff. We don't love him, we love what he does for us, for the way he hooks us up and blesses us and takes care of us. And Satan's going, yeah, I don't really believe in this thing called love. And for those of us that know the scriptures and know the story of God and his people, we know that the Bible teaches that it is actually possible for us to truly love God. In fact, if you ask Jesus what's the greatest command, the most important thing to you about your followers, what does he say? Love God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the invitation from God to humanity. Love me. And Satan's going, ah, I don't think it's possible. I don't think that kind of love actually exists. But what the Bible teaches and what this story shows is that the only way that we're able, ever able, to become true lovers of God is through the experience of suffering. That the loss, the pain, and somehow even the sins done by us and against us are redeemed or used or allowed or something by God in order to form hearts that truly love him. And so the only way God is able to make Job into the kind of man who loves God for who God is is to let him suffer and not let him know why. And so here's the judo move. It's not just suffering exists, we'll never know why, and that's kind of a bummer. It's suffering exists, we don't know why, and therefore suffering is an opportunity for us to be formed into true God lovers. If we knew the answers why, then all of a sudden, our love for God would be exposed. I don't trust you. I don't want you. I don't love you, God, for who you are. I'll allow suffering as long as I know why, as long as I know the good that you're going to bring into my life or into the world because of it, as long as I can get an answer that's theologically or intellectually or emotionally fulfilling, then, okay, God, I'm good with you. As long as you give me what I want or there's some sort of silver lining or redemption that I get to experience in this story, okay, I still don't get it, but God, I'll, I'll trust you. And our commitment to the question of why and getting an answer exposes the fact that our hearts haven't yet learned to love God for who he is. And we long for, like, if I just knew that in a few years he's going to use this pain, this tragedy, this loss to do something really good, okay, then I can accept him, then I can worship him, then I can love and trust God. But until I get that answer, I won't. And the reality is the moment we would get that answer to the why question is the moment we lose the opportunity to learn to love God for who he really is. So what are we being called into? We're being called into an authentic love relationship with God. With a God who we can't control. With a God who's operating largely up on this upper stage and we don't know what's going on there. And we're being called to embrace the mystery of suffering. 
to somehow embrace the reality that we don't have an answer to the why question and to receive that as a gift because it's the only way we can become truly human. And so Satan comes to God and he says, Job doesn't really love you. He's just using you. Job doesn't really love you. He's just using you. Where else has Satan said something like that? In the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to that first man and woman. And again, the Garden of Eden is a story of what happened, but it's also the story of what always happens. Satan comes to us and he says, God doesn't really love you. He's just using you. You can't really trust him. He doesn't really want what's best for you. And what we see is that when Satan says bad things to God about us, God sees right through it and doesn't believe it. But when Satan says bad things about God to us, we believed it. And the lie of Satan has always been that if you give yourself totally to God, if you wholly trust him, if you pursue loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you will never really be happy. The lie of Satan is that God doesn't really love us, and it's sunk deep into every single human's heart. And so as I've said before, I think one of the biggest problems, I know one of my biggest problems, and I think for most of us, it's that we don't really, really believe that God loves us. We say he does, and we read a story that talks about he does, and we tell one another that he loves us, but it really hasn't sunk down to be our functional drive and mode of operating. We are constantly skeptical and wondering, can I really trust him? Does he really love me? And I can feel like he does until somebody else comes along and they disapprove of me, they're critical of me. They take a shot at me and my world and my self-image begin to crumble and that exposes that it's not just that it's not God's love that's enough for me. I also need these people to affirm and to like me as well. And so this is our biggest problem. We don't really believe that God loves us. And therefore the reason most of us can't handle suffering is we, bec- we believe the lie of Satan. And so the biggest thing we need today is proof that God loves us? What's the evidence? We need to see something of God's love and allow us, that it will allow us to face suffering without ever knowing the answer why. What is that proof? The proof is that thousands of years after Job, God had another man who died naked, suffering and crying out to him with no answer. But Job is this foreshadowing, this picture of Jesus. We're told that Job was upright and blameless, but we know he was still a fallen human. In Jesus, we have the true upright and blameless human who comes and he lives a perfectly sinless life, but at the same time experiences the most horrible forms of human suffering. Again, asymmetrical. Jesus is perfectly obedient to the Father, lives that perfect life. And why did he do it? Live and die in our place. Love is the only answer. Love is the only answer. He loves us and he wants us and he dies on the cross to prove that Satan is a liar and God is a lover not because of anything we've done or because of anything he wants from us or to try to get out of us, but simply because he is love, he created us, he loves us, and he wants us to be with him forever. And so here's what I would say. We do not always know what the reasons are, but we know what the reasons aren't. When suffering strikes in our life or in our world, very rarely will we get a glimpse into, oh, here's why this happened or why God allowed this to happen. We don't know what the reasons are, but in Jesus and because of who he is and what he's done, we know what the reasons can't be. 
It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that God doesn't care. It can't be that God is indifferent to human suffering and distanced himself from it and is somehow removed. We know that those aren't the reasons. And I know for me and for many people that I've walked through with, walked through pain and suffering with over the years, this is an incredible source of comfort. Not that we know why, but we know what the reasons can't be. And I don't know why you experience this pain, this loss, this death. But I know the answer isn't that God doesn't love you or that God isn't with you or that God doesn't care about you or that God doesn't know what it's like. Because what we have in Jesus is a picture of a suffering God who enters into human history and upon himself takes the sin and suffering of the world. So it's not that he doesn't care or know what it's like. He loves us and he's with us. A couple more minutes. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, 28. This is one of those classic passages that gets um, spoken or read as followers of Jesus are trying to uh, talk about pain, suffering, and loss. In Romans chapter 8, 28, maybe somebody's spoken this to you in your loss or your suffering. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Okay? And so we're going, yeah, there was a death. There was a, a, a diagnosis. There was some sort of major loss or pain internally or externally in your life or in the world. But just take heart in this. God works all things together for good for his people. And we go, okay, God's going to make it all right in the end. God's going to work it out for good. God's going to use this, redeem this. And that's a really good start in terms of understanding, understanding what Paul's saying here. But what is the good? What is God's idea of good if he's going to work all things for good? Does that mean for our comfort? For our success? For our wealth? See, we always just read verse 28. Keep reading. For those God foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 29 unpacks what verse 28 means by the word good. If God is going to work all things, including your pain and suffering, for good, what is that good? that you would be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God is going to use the pain and suffering in your life to make you into someone who looks like Jesus. And that's good. Not that everything's going to go well for you, be easy for you, or go the way you want it to. He's saying every single moment, the good or the bad, the enjoyable or the painful, God's working with all of that, somehow mysteriously, asymmetrically connected to it, and he's going to form the image of Jesus in you. We are invited to share in the sufferings of Christ. And what I mean by that is that Jesus suffered not so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we could become like him. We don't get the answer to why. We don't always get to see how the story plays out. We don't always get to hear the conversation on the upper stage. But what we get, even in the lack of that, those answers and that clarity, is we get Jesus. And he gets us. And we are united with him in pain and suffering in a way that nothing else ever could. And for many of us in this room, we could tell the stories of how God has somehow worked through the loss, the tragedy, the hurt and pain and suffering we've experienced, and he hasn't 
tied the whole story together nicely at the end with a Disney farewell. But somehow he has used that to draw us nearer to him, to make us true God lovers, and to cause us to bear the image of Jesus more fully, to become who we truly are meant to be. And the crazy thing is, if there's one thing we know that's true, God promises to meet us and fill us with his life in our suffering, and suffering is the thing we spend all of our time avoiding. The one place where God definitely says, I'm going to be there with you, we're like, I don't really want to go there. But God's gracious, he's fathering us, his spirit's working in us to form that same love and image of Jesus. And so this morning, again, as we have every Sunday during Lent, we're going to invite you to come and receive communion, to take part in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup representing the very body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for the sins of the world. And if nothing else this morning, we come remembering the incredible suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf the physical pain and suffering of his body broken, blood poured out, but the deep, disconnected pain that he experienced on the cross, forsaken by the Father. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He's experienced the worst kind of pain. And when we come and when we take the bread, dip it in the cup and take it into ourselves, it's a moment to experience true communion with the suffering servant with a God who knows what it's like and who has promised to meet us there in those moments. And what we don't get is an answer to the question why. What we do get is a God who loves us and empowers us to love him in return. And in that place and that place alone, the desires of our hearts are satisfied. And so I want to invite you again to come. Ben and the band will come and lead us in another set of worship. And at any time, when you're ready, come forward to the table, take the, cup, the bread, dip it in the cup, take it into yourself, receive Jesus again, trust him, maybe with those specific places in your life this morning, and uh, take as long as you need at the table. You don't need to rush through. Come and actually commune with God for, for a few minutes. Talk to him, pray to him, listen to him, confess your sin, whatever you need to do, trust him and be with Jesus uh, at this table. So, will you stand with me, and we'll pray. Lord God, I know that you know that today, in this room, there is deep pain and suffering amongst your people. And it comes from all all different places and takes all different forms. But I know that there are those here today that are hurting deeply, that have lost significantly. And if it's not us personally, then it's just one or two seats away from us. And so this isn't theoretical for us. This is life. This is the bad world. But we are here today as those whose hearts long to know you and to trust you and to love you for you. Not just for what you do for us or what you give us, but we want you and you are the only thing that can fulfill us. And so we thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of your spirit, that you are a God who knows what it's like and who has promised to meet us in those dark moments. We don't know why, we don't understand how all this works, but we trust you. You are strong and you are good. You are with us and you are enough. In Jesus' name we pray.